I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business. This is Wednesday, December 14th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be looking at whether Irish consumers are being ripped off when shopping online. New research suggests that Irish consumers pay extra for their online shopping and are often blocked from using certain cross-border websites. And later in the programme, we'll be looking at the government's latest plan to tackle soaring rents in Dublin and Cork. Will putting a 4% a year threshold on rents over the next three years improve the lot of tenants? Don't forget, you can download Inside Business for free from iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But first to online shopping. This has become an area of major growth for retailers in recent years, but new research from the European Consumer Centre in Ireland suggests that shoppers here might be getting a raw deal when trying to make purchases online. Joining me by phone from Belfast is Martina Nee, the Press and Communications Officer with the European Consumer Centre, which produced the report. And I'm also joined in studio by my colleagues on the business desk, Laura Slattery and Mark. Mark Paul. Martina, uh, we'll start with you. Um, your report found that Irish shoppers continue to face artificial barriers and are regularly confronted with a refusal to deliver, longer delivery times and often higher prices. Yes, so this is, uh, unfortunately, um, we, we did a, there was a report uh, back in 2013, and uh, this was a new report, an update on that, really, and uh, looking at the complaints that the European Consumer Centres Network, uh, all the centres in Europe and EEA, uh, that we receive in relation to Article 20.2 of the Services Directive, and... Um, uh, and it's found that, unfortunately, uh, there has been an increase in the number of complaints, including for, uh, from from Ireland, uh, since the report about an increase of um, since the last report, sorry, uh, an increase of 140 percent actually. And uh, and Ireland actually had the third highest number of complaints in relation to this. And sorry, one of the biggest complaints is this so-called geo-blocking, whereby if you're uh, living in Ireland and you're trying to buy from a website in another European country, and for one reason or another, um, you're prevented from actually making that purchase, or else it's it's made very difficult for you and charges apply and so forth. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the the, the I suppose the the ways that uh, some some traders, obviously not all, um, uh, have carried out service and price restrictions and, and differentiation um, uh, based on consumers' nationality or place of residence. So um, it either happens uh, as you mentioned, geo blocking, where they're sort of uh, I, I suppose they're, like they're rerouted when you try and get onto say maybe the UK website and uh, you're rerouted to the Irish website instead. Or um, you kind of you, you you get you get content you get 
to you get to see the the actual product or what it, whatever it is, but then you're prevented from um, going any further, uh, either through payment um, because um, maybe your your card is issued in in a different address, or mm. they don't deliver there. Um, there's other, other there's also most of the complaints are in relation to online, majority of them, but there has been some offline ones as well. Um, so, for example, maybe there was an Irish consumer that um, rented a car in France and then arrived in France and didn't have a French passport, so, so couldn't actually take the car, which was obviously a disappointment to them. Um, wow. But mostly it's, it's, it's uh, in relation to geo-blocking and the European Commission. Mm. Have, uh, and I see Disney, uh, Disney yeah. were charging German and British customers more for visits to Disney uh, Paris, Disneyland in Paris. But they were warned uh, off it by the EU. Yeah, but there, that's, uh, there have been complaints uh, in relation to um, a sort of leisure services. That's one of the areas um, that, that, that was an area of concern, 25% of cases actually. And um, and then they, they're giving uh, one consumer, say from uh, from the UK, a different price when they arrive and then and then uh, the, compared to uh, a French national yeah. uh, would get a cheaper price maybe. Okay. Uh, but that's in, in, in other areas as well, maybe ski resorts, uh, so as in the EU, might, uh, there might have been complaints to other centres where, say, an Austrian consumer is charged a different price to an Italian where it, maybe the ski resort is in, in Italy and charged a different price as well. All right. I've experienced that in Kenya myself, where the locals uh, pay one price into a into a museum or uh, some such uh, place, and and the tourists basically pay, pay a much higher price. But anyway, you might expect it in a country like that. Uh, Laura, you've yeah. had some personal experience of this online shopping phenomenon, and uh, you've come up against uh, some of these issues. Tell yeah, I mean, um, there was a, there's an interesting story uh, that I really relate to in this report as a case study, and I think it's a great report because in a way it tells us what we know, but um, it assures us that we're not going mad. This is happening across. The boards happening to other people and it's not supposed to be happening really. Uh, and the story that I just wanted to highlight uh, just before I talk about my own shopping habits is uh, the case of the consumer who ordered a dress from a UK based site uh, priced at £95 sterling which you know is around €113 Euro, but the, the Irish price on the site was 155 and they did try and... Is the retailer uh, named? Um, no, the retailer isn't named in this, in this particular uh, report but um, they did uh, try and specify the UK as a price of delivery so they must have had a relative or something there. Um, but they were told by the retailer that they're clearly using an Irish credit card, clearly residing in Ireland. So no, they have to pay 155 rather than £95 wow. sterling, which, of course, there's a huge gap there. And that this is something that, you know, people aren't stupid. Uh, you, I mean, you can see both... Uh, uh, currencies on the price tags it's quite obvious you don't have to mm. travel to other countries to see it or, or look up two different versions of the website to see it So what's um, your experience so, been? Well my experience is that you can get you know in a, in a chain like Monsoon for example you can get uh, a dress that would be priced at 85 euro here which you know I you know it's you know wouldn't wouldn't Buy that at the drop of a hat. Um, not, uh, not um, unfortunately, uh, in that market a lot of the time. That's fifty-five pounds sterling, which is actually quite comfortable. You know, that's sort of around. It's just, it's just, it's, it's way less. Anyway, shall we put it then? Than um, than eighty five, uh, it, it sixty something euro is really what that probably is. late sixties. Yeah, I mean it just depends on where you are. Sterling mm. obviously has been bouncing around a little bit, um, but it's been you know the weakening of sterling this year has thrown a lot of this into sharp relief. I think, um, but it's something probably Irish people have always had a, an eye out for because we can see the the prices up in up in Northern Ireland and, and see what uh, you know from time to time historically whether it's groceries. 
um, or clothing or whatever else that we can see that sometimes there is better value to be had uh, across the border. But I almost think it's almost in the small everyday items. I should say, uh, listeners, that uh, Laura's wearing a very fine Christmas jumper that you bought yeah, in Belfast. Yeah, which I did week. buy in Belfast, yeah, for £36, uh, which I notice is, is only £25 now on the on their that, that particular website. Damn. Uh, but I believe the euro price on the tag was about €50. Euros, so you can see, again, there's another differential there. Yeah. Um, but even just an even smaller, again, item, a £2.50 roll of wrapping ribbon in Paper Chase, which is uh, uh, originated another sh- uh, chain that originates in the UK, uh, is four euro here, so they've they've whacked an extra euro on that. You can see that, so you can see the process being repeated over and over and over again. Price differentials, mm. and the sad so thing, online in, in shoppers trying to get around this can't. In your experience, who are the worst offenders? Um, well, I suppose I would like to highlight a, a few of the clothing chains, uh, and that would be Arcadia Group, who owns Topshop, and uh, um, a few others. Um, but also, um, the group that was known as Aurora Fashions, uh, not so much anymore. That's the companies like uh, Oasis and Warehouse. And basically, anything, anyone that is a UK retailer, I mean, Marks & Spencer goes through phases of, of being sort of out of line with, with the way the currency translation should be, but they're probably not the worst offender. Um, and I think, actually, Irish, you know, young Irish shoppers for whom, you know, price is, is you know, they're sensitive to price. They are voting with their feet and um, they're actually turning to, um, I think, chains like... Um, uh, H&M and uh, the Intertex Group, which is Zara. So these are uh, originating in, in Sweden and Spain. Mm. And uh, so they're kind of, they're in the euro pricing uh, right. to start with. So it's these sterling um, UK, British chains that are the worst offenders. And on that point, Mark, uh, you did a little study, uh, unscientific, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say, a few weeks ago for an article uh, for your caveat column in the Irish Times, where you, you took a look post-Brexit with sterling having dropped in value considerably. You went and had a look at what UK retailers were charging Irish consumers and how that compared to the sterling price and did some currency translations. And you found a 20% paddy levy was being uh, whacked on the cost of prices in most cases? Yeah, basically, <clears throat> what I found was um, if you had a, a, an online retailer that had an Irish site and a UK site, that the, 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 Irish, the Irish consumers were paying about 20% more than the UK consumers on average. Now, I christened it a paddy levy. The plevy, I was promptly told off by an irate Irish Times reader who told me I was being racist to Irish people. When I pointed out I was from Wicklow, he, um, he, uh, he, he went away. But um, So, yeah, generally about 20%. Um, for example, um, uh, Laura already mentioned Arcadia. I was on uh, down Miss Selfridge, the Miss Selfridge chain, um, and I was looking, you know, I picked, for example, uh, there was a, now, not for myself, I might add, but a black lace bodycon dress um, was... I think it'd look well in it. Yeah, well, maybe. But, uh, £35 on the UK Miss Selfridge site, which would be about... Who about, was it for? Sorry. About, about, uh, it wasn't for anybody. This is oh. part of an unscientific study. Oh, okay. um, and uh, uh, so that's £35, which would be about, about 40, 41 euros now. Um, but it was 49 euros uh, on the Irish side. A pair of Selena Flair sandals. I don't know what Selena Flair sandals are, but uh, it was a pair of Selena Flair sandals, £45 on the UK Miss Selfridge side, be about €53, Euros, um, €65 Euros on the Irish side. Um, so that's about, about a quarter extra. Um, Marks and Spencer's, Laura already mentioned. Um, Marks and Spencer's, 
had had a consistent um, 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 Paddy Levy plevy of about twenty percent across most of its products. And um, when I put this to Marks and Spencers, and, and and they come back and they said, well, you know, we um, um, we have extra costs in Ireland and, and and rates and so on, but we're talking about online shopping here. I mean, this isn't mm. a bricks and mortar site. Uh, and we, we, uh, when you're shopping online with Marks and Spencers, for example. You can buy a product and then arrange to pick it up in a store. Um, so it's not like they have to ship the thing. They, they have it on the shelves in the store. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you're just really just reserving something. Well, I suppose somebody does have to pick it out and it is held in a store, whether it's a warehouse or actually in the shop. I guess there is a bricks and mortar element yeah, but, to, but, to but, all of this. But but but, but the, the actual mechanics of going and retrieving that from the shelf or the warehouse and giving it to the customer mm-hmm. who comes and collects it is surely not 20% more expensive than an Irish shop. So the point that I was making was that if it's bricks and mortar shopping, um, and you know we all know the Irish cost base and rates are so high here, you can make an argument that perhaps um, um, stuff should be more expensive in a bricks and mortar shop in Ireland uh, compared to the UK. But online shopping, I just can't see why. Yeah, Martina, do we know how much Irish people spend every year on online shopping? I'm not sure if I had an exact figure, but... I I know that um, there was research done by the European scoreboard, consumer scoreboard last year, and I found that uh, Irish consumers are, are shopping online more. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're certainly shopping online more from Irish-based uh, traders, and um, uh, the increase in cross-border from other EU countries is starting to ingre- increase as well, which is good, which means that I suppose they're feeling a little bit more confident. But uh, I suppose... What, what ECC Net is calling for in, in relation to services directive is that um, you know it, it, it's 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 that um, the, service, the services directive should, is there to like improve consumer confidence so that just to ensure mm. that traders um, have no provisions in their general conditions of service yeah. that results in different treatment for consumers provided that they can justify it like, so there are circumstances where they can justify it that it is justifiable but there needs to be more clarity on that mm. what exactly is discrimination um, and we're, so we're often thinking, hearing about yeah. how the single market in Europe is such a wonderful thing and the customs union and tariff free, free trading we've heard a lot of that uh, especially post uh, Brexit there was a lot of that in the debate uh, in Britain, and yet here we have a situation where Irish people shopping on other European websites are, you know, they're clearly being ripped off. Yes, the, the European Commission, um, they they know that this is happening. We, we, we certainly welcome the, the fact that they, they're taking, they know that action uh, is needed to tackle uh, discrimination and, and geo-blocking. Uh, they launched, uh, or sorry, they proposed legislation earlier this year. Um, at the moment, it's going through the various stages, but they're certainly looking at um, at the moment, they're, they're, they're paying particular attention to uh, a situation where, say, the trader doesn't necessarily, say, target, for example, the Irish market. But if an Irish consumer decided to contact the trader and I want that dress or whatever product on your website or, the, or whatever service, then um, the, the trader, uh, you know, they may have an agreement with a manufacturer where they're not allowed to sell to the Irish market or or um, they can only give it a certain price. But um, the, the e-commerce package is looking at, uh, looking at that and uh, saying that, uh, you know, unless it's exceptionally justified, then that shouldn't happen. If, the, if a, if a, if a, tra- if a mm. consumer uh, contacts a trader and actually then, you know, uh, a, 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 wants to arrange for a deliver- or collection um, uh, from know, a certain point, then do, they should be able to do that. Do we know if any Irish traders have been complained about by citizens in other European countries? I mean, is this all a one-way street? Or? We don't have the exact... I mean, we know the, the figures that we have is the number of um, complaints from Irish consumers, and that's 66. 
but there has been uh, there has been some complaints. We do deal with with complaints in relation to Irish traders as well. I don't have exact figures, but um, there are there are situations where it kind of it goes. Uh, Irish consumers tend to shop from from UK sites or from from EU based. Uh, there isn't that many from the EU that be shopping from Irish yeah. traders, but but there are certain big traders as well. Um, and it, uh, so it depends on the case by case situation whether the, the, the that this the goods and services fall under the services directive as well. Because some don't. Um, Laura, with uh, Britain leaving the EU, this probably this problem probably isn't going to get any better, is it? Um, I really couldn't answer that. <laughs> Mark, what do you think? I suspect not. Um, well, well, it depends on what happens at Sterling. That's really a Sterling question. Um, um, you know, the, the the problem was magnified immediately after Britain voted to leave the European Union when Sterling crashed to the floor and it sort of made the scales drop off people's eyes when um, the prices of UK products... Yeah, but the UK is not going to be subject to European Union legislation, presumably if we have a hard Brexit uh, in particular. So, you know, different rules of engagement are going to apply uh, for UK retailers down the road. So it's hardly going to become any easier um, to do business with them. No, but but I mean, if sterling strengthens again significantly, I mean, it sort of it will mask some of the problem again. You know, um, look, it's it's it, it, it's really it's really a bet on where the where the currency is going to go. Whatever about you know uh, standards of service or the products you receive, really, what people care about is price. And um, when they're shopping online, that's why people go and shop online uh, because it's because they think that they'll get things uh, more cheaply or, or you know cheaper. And if uh, if UK retailers in particular are charging Irish consumers more than they're charging UK consumers for the same products and um, without any differentiating cost base it's going to be very very hard for them to maintain explanations for Laura. Look I think it leaves a, a bad taste uh, so I think ultimately consumers will vote with their feet and, and go mm. with retailers who they feel aren't ripping them off you know, they Is this going to put you off online shopping for Christmas? Um, well I have to say, I have a bit of a mixed relationship with online shopping. That's this is maybe a, a conversation for another time. But uh, I don't really think the delivery system is up to scratch. In my particular patch of uh, Dublin, I have to basically go into the absolute middle of nowhere. The Dublin Eleven uh, Postal Sorting Office is uh, a sight to behold, well, and perhaps uh, the that might new, be an issue for the new chief the, executive of Ireland. I'd, I'd love to show the him where the, I'd love to show him where the Dublin Eleven Postal Sorting Office right, is. Perhaps okay. we could do an interview out there if he's listening. We'll take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll be looking at the government's latest plan to tackle soaring rents in Dublin and Cork. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. We look now at the government's latest intervention in the housing market. Minister Simon Coveney has proposed that rent increases in Dublin and Cork be capped at 4% a year out to 2019. This designed to put a lid on the soaring rent in our two biggest cities, but it has met with lots of opposition. And to discuss this matter, I'm joined in studio by Madeleine Lyons, the residential property editor of the Irish Times, and by John McCartney, the chief economist with estate agent Savills. And on the phone, we have McBurn, a spokesperson for the Dublin Tenants Association. Madeline, you might just outline the government's proposal to us. Okay, I mean, the, the main plank and the main headline grabber is the introduction of these pressure zones whereby you'll have the 4% cap in Dublin and Cork. Um, and then they've left the door open then to apply this in other areas uh, subject to review as time goes on and the Residential Tenancies Board will be responsible for monitoring all of that. Um, and then they've exempted from this as well newly built developments, so REITs, you know, the the, the investment fund uh, built to rent uh, 
structures and um, any vacant homes that have been refurbished. Um, so while the headline grabber is the, the 4% mm. cap, there's a few things that have been kicked down the road then um, that, that would have been in the offing and people would have been looking for, such as a possible introduction of tax breaks for investors, um, which is what a lot of the lobby groups would have been looking for, um, tax um, uh, mortgage, more mortgage interest relief and um, more income tax relief actually on rental income uh, so they are all going to be reviewed but there seems to be an awful lot of plans and task forces and working groups that um, have been put in, in the planning and mm. I suppose the argument is that there's a crisis now why isn't there more being done um, the only thing I'd say there though is that it's a it's a really tricky balancing act uh, that, that he's faced with and you, you know Whatever measure they bring in, it, it, the, the risk is that they could uh, deter investors, which would be a huge, a huge disaster in an already, uh, you know, stricken market. So by by being too costly uh, for renters, uh, you would actually tighten up the market even more. Uh, so they have to bring a fairly measured approach to it. And if they made it a free for all for investors and offered huge yields and tax breaks, you could have a huge. Uh, uh, Shift into into the into the sector at the cost of the of the supply of of, of housing stock for for buyers and first time buyers who are trying to already fight for that stock in the market. So there's a few juggling acts that are there that I don't think people fully appreciate. Yeah, John um, John McCartney, why do we need this intervention? Well, it's arguable that we don't and that it might actually make things worse, but I think it's a political necessity for the minister to be seen to be doing something to help people who are, in fairness, uh, put the pin of their collars in the rented sector with with, uh, very high absolute rents and, and rapid growth in rents. So it, it's debatable whether it, 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 it hangs together from an economic point of view. Most economists, I think, would eschew um, interventions in the market like this. But I have to say uh, that, you know, if, if the objective is to provide predictability to help households in the rented sector to do their budgeting, I think it probably will help them. Uh, and as Madeline says, the risk the biggest risk, perhaps, is that it will deter investment and reduce the supply of properties, which would be counterproductive because that would just put more pressure on rents in the longer run. But I don't feel that it will because I think that the returns on residential property investment currently for cash investors, now not for mortgaged investors, but for investors that are buying with cash, are already so good that even mm-hmm. a bit of a slowdown in rental... Put some numbers on that for me. What, what kind of returns are we talking about? Yeah, well, if you look at the DAFT report, the latest rental report, you will see that they've carved Dublin up into 25 areas that correspond largely with the old postcodes. Mm-hmm. And in 19 of those 25 areas, uh, the gross yield on residential property investment on average is, is over 5% in 19 of the 25. That's gross, so that's what, before tax and so forth? And, and expenses, landlords' expenses like registering a lot the of which can be written off against tax, I presume. Some of it can. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. This is the argument, you know, not so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Property tax, you know, etc. Yeah, there, there is no doubt that, that the costs of running uh, a residential property investment have increased pretty dramatically in, in recent years. But still in all, when your starting point is a gross yield of over 5%, even when you net that back and let's mm. allow 25 or 30% reduction in that net yield, you're still looking at a net return of 35 4%. And that's before you apply the capital growth 
remember that Dublin house prices are currently growing by five, five and a half percent per annum, and that goes into your total return as well. So when you put it together, investors are getting a pretty good return. Sure, okay. And you, you say it brings some predictability for uh, the tenant, but um, the Peter McVary Trust put an interesting tweet out this morning. They said that average rents in Dublin as of Q3 2016, €1,545. And three years of 4% increases lead to a monthly average of €1,737. And that equals a yearly extra cost of €2,304. I mean, that's a pretty steep, that's a pretty steep rise on what are already, you know, very high rents. Uh, Mick Byrne might bring you in on this point. Um, Where does the Dublin Tenants Association stand on this plan? Well, on the one hand, we, you know, broadly welcome any measure that would take some of the heat out of the rent increases that we're seeing um, in Dublin over the last uh, two to three years. But on the other hand, what we were promised was a national strategy for the rental sector. But what we've got is a half-hearted um, emergency measure. And um, I, but I say I say that for two reasons. First of all, this is very much an emergency being pitched as an emergency measure to limit uh, rent increases in some areas to 4% per year. And that doesn't address the fundamental affordability problem in a decisive way, as, as you've just mentioned. The other reason I say that is because any strategy for the rental sector has to be judged on the basis of the protections it provides for tenants and the issue of security of tenure. And there's absolutely nothing, not a single word, in the document to address those, to address those issues. So that's extremely disappointing, and it's really unacceptable, given that Fine Gael have been in power now for five years or more, um, that, that we don't have something much more decisive here uh, to address the, the crisis. You're a support group for people living in Dublin 7, um, I think I'm right in saying. Just uh, tell us a little bit about the experience for renters in Dublin 7. Well, we, we work with tenants from across Dublin, although we're based in, in Dublin 7, and it's really, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute horror show, the things people are dealing with. When rent increases, it's very common for us to see rent increases of between 20 and 40%. I would say the majority of cases that we deal with are rent increases of more than 20%. It's very, very common to find tenants who are, uh, whether they're working or are not working, who are afraid of becoming mm. homeless. And what you've got to also really appreciate is that this, this rent affordability problem is happening in the context of zero security of tenure for tenants. And I'd just like to give some examples of that because I think it's really important that we appreciate it. First of all, at any point in the first six months of your tenancy, your landlord can evict you for no reason whatsoever. And so if you imagine you, you go on holiday and you rent a car and you rent it for a week, but after 24 hours, you're called and said, sorry, we just changed our mind. Give us the car back. Mm. That, that would be a ridiculous way to run a business. But yeah. imagine when that's, when that's your home you're talking about, right? On top of that, if your landlord wants to use the property for family use, they can evict you at any time during your tenancy. So again, imagine you rent a car. 24 hours later, they ring you up and say, sorry, my cousin needs that car. I'm going to need it back. That's ridiculous. Without notice? There's, there is no basis for having such a carte blanche for landlords. Mm. Um, and that really needed to be addressed because when the landlord, landlords have complete power over tenants, that accelerates the impact of inadequate supply on tenants and it accelerates homelessness. 
Yeah. By the way, these 20 to 40% increases that you're talking about, which are being pushed through against uh, some tenants, I mean, how many are we, are we talking about? Is that, you know, a handful of cases or is that a majority? How many cases are we talking about roughly? Well, like, we're, we're, we're a small volunteer-run organization, and so many more tenants would probably contact uh, Threshold, for example, which is a more well-known organization. But even our small volunteer group, we'd be dealing with easily a dozen cases every week, mainly from Dublin 7, Dublin 3, um, and Dublin 1 of people who are experiencing rent increases of 20 to 40% and sometimes more. Yeah. Madeline, um, what about the security of tenure issue? Obviously, what Mike is talking about is, is a clear problem. Um, I do think it was alluded to in the, docu- in the document yesterday. I mean, it's uh, and it's part of this kicking the can down the road, but they did talk about a move from four-year to six-year tenancy and um, with it, and that's as a first step towards tenancies of infinite duration. So, you know, t- to be fair, it, it, it has been included in the document, uh, but it's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the, the soaring rates, I mean, I, you know, we, we have my experience there. Um, but similarly, I mean, some of these major rise, they apply to headline rents, headline headline rents that are come out on a monthly basis. So you've got a stock of that's, you've got a full stock of maybe over three hundred and thirty thousand houses or units to rent in the country at the moment. And every month, then in these, when we look at these monthly increases, they apply to twenty to thirty thousand properties. So there's a whole tranche of other stock that's out there that hasn't been increased in the last year or two. I'm not saying there isn't a crisis, there isn't a problem, but we are in a pressure zone and there are, you know, I think the, me- the measures are trying to address those. Um, but there are other areas where people have been on rents for a very long time um, and in a lot of cases landlords don't particularly want to increase rents. If they've got a decent tenant, etc., they, they, mm. they don't want to change it. So, you know, if you're in Dublin 7, you're going to see that and that doesn't make it any easier for the people in Dublin 7. But is, is it endemic throughout the country? I'm not so sure. And that's why they have to try and take a targeted approach to this. And it's, it, 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 it's tricky. Yeah. Um, John, Fianna Fáil don't seem to be in favour of, uh, of this on a number of levels. Uh, one, they don't agree with the 4% increase. They think it should be lower. And secondly, they feel that it should be extended to other parts of the country, not just Dublin and Cork, but some of the bordering areas around Dublin and some of the other large urban areas, uh, Galway, Limerick, etc. Uh, what's your view? Yeah, well, I, I would agree with Madeline uh, that uh, what we do see really is the decoupling of, of rental growth in the major urban conurbations from what's going on in, in, in the rest of the country. And I think if you're going to do anything, a targeted approach is appropriate. Now, they've identified Cork and Dublin uh, initially, but they have left the door open, as Madeline said, to designate further areas in due course if, if uh, required. But... Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't have a problem uh, with targeting Dublin and Cork. I think there is an argument that the commuter belt could have been included because I know I, I live in Kildare and I know that that market is, uh, you know, the vacancy is razor thin and rents are, are high and growing rapidly. So I think there is a, an argument for that. But all of this has to be put in the context of help to buy and the relaxation of the central bank rules mm. as well, which came in over the last six or eight weeks together. And in combination, I think what they will do is they will make it easier for first-time buyers, particularly in Dublin, to get on the housing ladder and to buy properties. And that will reverse a trend that we've seen over the last three or four years where people couldn't buy their own properties because of restrictive mortgage lending and they were conscripted into the rented sector when they didn't really want to be there. And I think some of those people will now divert 
to the owner-occupier market, and that will take some. But where's heat. the supply going to come from? Because what are we building? 10, 11, 12,000 units a year when demand is probably 25,000, 30,000? Yeah, I mean, if we think of it in terms of the number of households, uh, in the last 12 months, there has been an increase in Dublin of over 10,000 households, and we've built about 3,400 housing units to accommodate them. So a market that's already tight has got a lot tighter in the last 12 months. Now, that's not going to be addressed overnight. Uh, and uh, you know, in, in, to be fair to the minister, in other parts of his plan, he has made provision for increasing the supply and, and, and getting that pipeline of production uh, running again. Uh, but in the short term, and, and speaking specifically about the rental sector, I think that help to buy and the relaxation of the mortgage rules, which I, I wouldn't be particularly in favour of either of them, but they will make it easier for people to buy, and that will have at least the benefit of taking some heat out of the rental sector. Now, the other side of it is it'll be inflationary for the owner-occupier sector, but that's a, probably a discussion for another day. Yeah, I think it already has in certain uh, in, in certain parts of the country. Madeleine, any sense of how the landlords feel about this? We saw a dip in the share price of uh, IRES, the, the REIT uh, listed mm, mm. in the Irish market, and it's the biggest, uh, I think it's the biggest landlord in the country, over 2,000 units. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a you know, a, a one-day wonder kind of reaction. I don't think it's going to be, well, I'm not going to predict, but I don't think it's going to be long-term. Um, I think, actually, this plan has, above anything else, almost prioritised protecting the build-to-rent sector, so these REITs. Um, I think there's definitely, there seems to be very little appetite to nurture a kind of a private landlord sector within the country. Um, I think they're much happier to see these big... Um, conglomerates come in and build their, their specific build-to-rent uh, buildings. And I'd say the lobby group came in heavy on them as well because mm. um, I think they've been quite well secured and, and protected with this if you look at the 4% cap. I mean, it's a guarantee of income for them, essentially, and that's the priority that's come out of yesterday's report. So, and 4% is a good return in this absolutely. really low-yield environment that we're in absolutely. with interest rates. Over three years, it's 12%. You know, what would you get if you had it on deposit in the bank? Mm. Um, Mick Byrne, what would the Dublin Tenants Association like to see done in terms of supply? Well, I think when you when you look at supply, you've always got to look at the housing system as a whole and not at one particular sector. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that we need an increased supply of private rental accommodation, because if we had increased supply of social housing or owner-occupancy, then, as John was saying, that would take some of the heat out of the private rental sector. I think, overall, the, the key issue is that the market is in a heap. I mean, the, the, that, that's quite clear, and that's where all of the, the problems are stemming from, both on the te- in terms of the provision of finance um, and in terms of development itself. So for anything decisive to happen, it's, ne- it's going to need to be the government that, that takes action. So we would, uh, we would want to see immediately a significant building program of social housing or affordable, affordable rental housing in which the government takes the lead and in which the tenant's right to housing is, is prioritised. John, are we going to see a situation in Dublin in particular in the years ahead where people are going to be renting rather than buying? That's just going to be the mindset uh, as we see in other, you know, as we see in major capital cities around the world because it's simply too expensive to buy. It's, it's just not affordable for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a distinct possibility that we're moving towards a sort of a London on the Liffey type scenario where people really have given up the idea of home ownership. Um, uh, and um, at least that would have been my view maybe eight weeks ago. Now, I think the 
um, the moves that we've seen regarding help to buy and the, the the relaxation of the central bank rules will do some will go some way to 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 changing that. You know, I mean, the effect. I just ran a little worked example on help to buy, and the effect of help to buy in combination with the relaxation of the mortgage rules is that if you wanted to buy a, a house that was worth two hundred and fifty thousand euro, the 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 deposit that you would need. To, to, to do that deal in the past would have been 11.2% and that has come down to 5%. So it's made it a lot easier for people to get onto the housing ladder. And maybe we have rode back on, on that uh, and come back from the brink. Mm. I have to say, it does sound sexy and continental to have a, you know the idea of people living in long-term rented accommodation, footloose and fancy-free and all of that. But I have often pointed out that you know, the fabric of society needs to adjust to that. For example, if you take the idea of pensions, um, at the moment we have a kind of a model whereby you buy your house in your 20s when you get married, you, you live in it until you retire. Uh, by the time you've retired, you've paid off your mortgage and you live rent-free for the rest of your life. And on, on that basis, you can, you can survive on a pretty modest pension and that's what most of us will end up with, actually. Uh, however, if, if you're going to be renting all your life, uh, then uh, what are you going to do when you when hit retirement? Retire? Because and your income have, dries up. Yeah, and you've got ongoing costs of housing. So basically, people need to adjust their pensions provision right away if that's where we're going to go. And I don't see any sign of that. I don't see the savings ratio adjusting, for example. I don't see pensions coverage increasing that dramatically. So. I, I, it's, it, I think it's a possibility, but I think it's a more remote possibility than it was a couple of months ago. And I think what we're seeing really is a political reaction uh, to, to, to people objecting really to the idea of the loss of, of home ownership as, 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 as um, an aspiration. Yeah, there's probably also the issue about um, the, the nature of the rent of the housing available in the rental sector in Ireland. It, it's just not the same as it is in Paris or London or New York or whatever, where you you know you have storage and you have basements and you have this that and the other. Whereas here, the units just aren't practical in many cases for raising a family. Madeline. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree. But I mean, you know, the introduction of the REITs, um, you know... Has um, changed it enough. It has changed it, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those places are very nice now, yeah. Yeah, what about empty units? Do we know how many empty units we have uh, in Dublin houses that aren't, or, you know, apartments, etc., that aren't being occupied for one reason or another? I don't have the figure. Well, you. yeah, I have the statistics here. So, um, in terms... Of, in terms of a vacancy rate, um, nationally... Uh, according to the preliminary census volume mm. from 2016, 12.8% of the housing stock is vacant, um, which is probably plausible. I think where we start getting into the realms of implausibility are when we start to look at the vacancy rates in Dublin. According to the preliminary census volume, the, the, the vacancy rate uh, in April 2016 in Dublin City Council area was 9%. And to me, that just is a red herring. That just does not seem to be plausible. And I suspect what has probably happened is census enumerators have had difficulty accessing um, apartment blocks. So that's are, almost one in ten properties effectively vacant, again, for one reason or another, who knows? Well, well, if you believe the numbers, you know, but it might just be that the, the enumerators couldn't get into the apartment blocks because Dublin City has a, a high density of, mm. of, of apartment type um, uh, dwellings compared with other regions of the country. And I suspect that that's 
partly behind that. So I wouldn't, I personally don't believe it, and I wouldn't put any great hope or store in the idea that we can resolve the housing crisis through more intensive utilisation of the existing stock, that to me. Madeline, just coming back to the supply issue, you're talking to developers all the time, I'm sure. Um, Is there any, are you getting any sense that uh, there's a real increase, a meaningful increase in supply coming on stream now and that in the next few years we we might be getting to a situation where supply will meet demand? Yes, yeah. I mean, I would be, I'm currently working on something that would look at what's coming on in, in the new homes front for next year. And it's, it's a fairly exhaustive list. It's, it, there's, there's, there's lots and lots of uh, planning out there. And, like, and, and this, these aren't piped dreams either. They're, they're, they're in the ground now. They're planning to launch in spring. They're planning to launch in autumn of next year for sale so people can be in by Christmas. So there's a very healthy flow, I would believe, coming through. Um, so how long before we, we get that equilibrium? Oh, I would say maybe three or four years. Right, still. Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm inclined to agree with that. Mm. I mean, Mm. currently, I mean, based on population growth and dilapidation of the existing stock, we probably need to be building 20, 25,000 housing units per year nationally. Mm -hmm. But of course, that doesn't take us up to a natural vacancy rate. We're currently, I believe, well below the natural vacancy rate for the market and we have to replenish that naturally vacant stock as well before we have any kind of a functioning market. And John, we've had plenty of interventions from the government in the housing market over the years. Uh, Even in the pre-crash years, we had, I think, three reports from Peter Bacon on measures that the government might implement to to help uh, resolve the problems that were uh, evident at that time. Have any of these measures ever worked? <laughs> that, 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 that's a very invidious question, Kieran. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that they have ultimately, um, and I think part of the problem is, is that, um, I mean, if we think back to the Bacon reports, you know, uh, there, there was some evidence that they were working, and then you know you began to get strong lobbying to reverse the decisions, and then you get sort of flim-flam policies, and they're not really given the chance. Uh, to work, and I think that's a big part of, of the problem that the policies very often, um, are, are you know, are not really very well adhered to. And then I think the very worst outcome of all is when you get policy that doesn't really have a clear direction or vision, um, and and that that is unnerving uh, to investors. Madeline was making the point that that build to rent is, I, I think, a big part of the of, of the future of the housing market in Ireland. I certainly think so. And and a big part of the solution to our to our crisis. But, you know, in order for that to work, you have to attract uh, pretty serious international capital. And the one thing that they don't want to see is a random walk in terms of housing policy flipping from one thing to the next. And I think it would be really, really damaging if uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael got into an auction over whether 4% or 2% or 3% is is the right number. You know, um, whether we like it or not, uh, the government um, at least uh, says it has done its research and that the the 4% uh, increase is backed up by research and is carefully calibrated. And I think... Uh, that at least should be respected, you know. Yeah. Uh, McBurn, the final word to you. The There are many moving parts to this housing issue and the government has put in place a number of policies now to try and address them. Have you any confidence um, that the policies that have been announced to date will actually work? No, not at all. We needed to spend money on housing as a country and the state needed to play a leading role in that. And that simply hasn't happened. That We're not going to 
deal with a systemic crisis of the housing system by tinkering around with the edges and by having task forces about, you know, incentives down the road and encouraging banks to lend to developers and so on down the road. We're going to need to spend some money to make something happen quickly. And, that, and, and the, the people who are in a position to do that are the Department of Housing and local authorities, who are the, the only actor in Irish society, and this is not an ideological point, it's just a reality, they're the only actor who, can cur- who are in a position to quickly provide large-scale uh, house-building programs that can deliver housing that's affordable to the majority of people who live in Dublin. And until that happens, I don't think that there's going to be any significant change in, uh, in, in, in the, the experience of tenants in Dublin. All right, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Madeleine Lyons, John McCarthy, Laura Slattery, Mark Paul, Martina Nee, and McBurn. Declan Connell produced the show with JJ Vernon, a sound engineer. Don't forget you, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 